Well, hello everybody and welcome to a brand new episode of The Word on the Hill. We are the Lang Geek Guys. Uh, and my name is Father Peter Musser. My name is Scott Powell. And I'm going to do the whole podcast in this accent. Are you? Do yep. you think you're going to offend all of our rednecks? Uh, well, our redneck I mean, contingency? I mean, most of them are pretty thick skin. Yeah, that's true. That's one of the... One of the things. <laughs> anyway, it is <laughs> the twenty-first like, Sunday in ordinary time. We're already getting that. Thirty seconds in, we're already talking about what Sunday it Dude, is. Dude, well, I just have to tell you. No, wait a second. It is the twenty-first Sunday of ordinary time on August twenty-first. Dude, that's the golden. Jinx. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's the golden. It's the golden. It's liturgy. like a golden birthday. It's like a golden birthday. But it's like the twenty-first and the twenty-first. It's and a golden it, birthday. And in my eye. What, is Wait, the, what? what are you saying? Dude, who, I, Scott Powell and I have been engaged in, or sorry, Dr. Scott Powell, PhD, um, uh, have, I, have been engaged in outreaching, reaching, reaching out and That's it. into the world. We we were we spent all morning. We're covered in chalk, literally. If it, it was looks like we've been in that like color festival in India. <laughs> what a yeah, I'm, just go. Just <laughs> just, you know what I'm talking about. What a the, strange. Re- your reference points are just wonderful. <laughs> it does look like that, except it it's all white. It, yeah, so so it kind of looks like we are bakers. It does look like we're bakers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which so, is much less exciting. Yeah, but than whatever we, you said. But we're kind of happy. We've been drinking Gatorade and eating <laughs> Sour Patch Kids, and and uh, some, do you have Sour Patch Kids? I do have Sour Patch Kids. Are you eating? Got them? Swedish Fish, and we got some Sour Bread Crawlers here. You, you just we got lied. some peanut butter M and M's. Like are literally. those peanut butter? Oh yeah, dude. I, I kept them over here. We got some Reese's well, Pieces. What's the difference between Reese's Pieces and peanut butter M and M's, dude? Let's just Aside be honest. From the company who makes them. I mean, it's really all about proportion of chocolate to peanut butter, because really Reese's Pieces is just peanut butter chips with some candy coating on them. Isn't that all what peanut butter M&M's are? No, they're peanut butter in the core okay. surrounded by chocolate Toss goodness. Me, we're going to do a scientific experiment. Okay, okay, here we go. Hand me one of those. Here's okay. that. Here we go. I am. Oh, there is a lot more girth to the M&M. Yep. Okay, here we go. I'm trying uh, Reese's Pieces. Okay. Mm. Delicious. Okay, my, my, my brother and sister just were like, can you not chew on, on the air? Well... This is for science, though. Oh, this is for it's science. Different. Okay. It's different. It's different than us just like trying to sneak in some Doritos. It is um, the M and M's win by a landslide. Yeah, I. But they're thicker. They have more peanut butter. They're creamier. I really. Uh, I've been. I've been proved wrong. Dude. They're not the same. Well, and on that happy note. On that happy note, it's it's just amazing. We're this upcoming Sunday. We've got our outdoor air mass. The, up here, our, our outdoor air mass. If you just think about that term, it doesn't make any sense. Oh, you're right. It is kind of a tautology, isn't it? It is sort of a tautology. We have our mass outside. It, we're, it's the open air mass. We always call it the open air mass. Which, Oh, open air versus outdoor air. Neither of them makes sense if you really think about them. Open but air? We're not, we're not, we didn't call you guys here to think. I mean, we have air in the, in the church. Right. It's forced air. It is air. open. It's forced air, Except air conditioning. For the air coming in the windows and the doors. This is really not worth a debate. <laughs> We have our big open air mass on Fairfield, right in the center of CU's campus this Sunday. So we're very excited about that. So if you're in the Denver area, hmm. Denver the Boulder. Boulder area, um, come join us. Come it's on down. Six, 6 p.m. Sunday, the 21st. Bring a blanket. August, 21st and 21st. Bring a blanket. Bring your heart. 
and your and a prayerful spirit and, and a prayerful uh, spirit. it's it's gonna be super awesome it is it, i love my favorite one of my pa- favorite things in the year is hearing um Mark Scola choir resounding through the stone buildings of CU. Oh, so it's good. really cool. Even if you're just sitting in the dorms and you don't know what's going on, you can't miss it. It's really beautiful. It really is like it's like heaven coming to earth on Farron Field. It, true. And it happens to be the golden birthday of the liturgy. Of the twenty first reading twenty first Sunday on August twenty first. So twenty first reading of the August the twenty second. Our twenty first reading is coming from the book of Isaiah. No, no, our first reading is coming from the book of Isaiah twenty one, verse twenty one through twenty one. It's Isaiah sixty six eighteen to twenty one, bro. Very good. Our responsorial psalm is Psalm twenty one, verses two through one. It's Psalm one seventeen one and two. Our second reading is coming from the book of Hebrews chapter twenty one, verse twenty through one. And our Hebrews is actually verses uh, chapter 12, 5 through 7, skipping 11 through 13. And our gospel is coming from Luke chapter 21, verses 21 through 21. <laughs> and Luke is chapter 13, um, 22 to 30. <laughs> you, my, so my, my strategy is always to... <laughs> this is where, I totally didn't even get Here's it. a clue for all of you guys. If you have a bad joke... If you just stick with it as long as possible, someone will eventually <laughs> laugh. It's true. Uh, dude, it's just something you should know. What, why did? Could you tell that I totally wasn't getting it? No, were you really not? Yeah. I was like, I was everything like, was twenty-one. I was like, he just he just keeps on saying the wrong numbers, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, did I study the wrong thing? Oh, that's great. I was like, these readings are great. I was like, oh no, oh. I studied the wrong week. Oh. I really inside, and so I was just like, I'll just say what I have, and then and then he'll correct me. <laughs> nope. No, no, it was just a silly, silly joke. All right, uh, I, I, Isaiah, Isaiah, as they say in British in the British world. Yes. What are we talking? Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah. Yes, Isaiah. You know, I've recently come to appreciate football. <laughs> Some people call it soccer. Yeah. Have you really? Or are you just saying that? I don't know. It's just okay. a British accent and uh, Aussie accent. It's not yeah, more. Yours Australian. was yours was definitely. It's not the the Russian that it usually every one of your accents <laughs> usually is. <laughs> Thanks for that. You bet, man. Well, All um, right. So Isaiah sixty six, dude, uh, which is gets us into a uh, tertio Isaiah. Yeah. Which I still don't understand. I know that there's there's like Isaiah Deutero Isaiah. It says basically it's like. What do you? How do you divide up the book of Isaiah? And I remember somebody tried to teach me that there was like some third part to Isaiah, and I was like, I don't even get it, dude. Well, there's I know arguments that, I, that there's different authors, but I don't buy that. There are three distinct parts to Isaiah. That's true. Oh, so we are actually in the third part of Isaiah. I mean, I just judging, yep. judging by the number. No, we realize. So, so here's how Isaiah sort of works, right? You have basically Isaiah one through five. This is this is the way I think of Isaiah. This is different than the the um, proto Deutero and Trito Isaiah theory, but the way that I break it up in my head, you have Isaiah one through five, which is the big introduction, right? So it, it's introduced. The scene is set. Isaiah is called in chapter six. Remember, he's caught up into the throne room. Kind of like kind of like the kindergarten preschool of this. Yes. Okay. That's safe. One through five. Um, and then so in the middle. There's two royal narratives in Isaiah. So Isaiah, it's so complicated because it deals with such a vast period of time. Some of it's going backwards in time. Some of it's way forward in time to the future. It's, it's really hard to navigate. Um, and so in the middle of all of these prophecies, you have two bits, two chunks of narrative, basically stories of two different kings. 
So from chapter uh, seven through eight, basically, it's the story of King Ahaz, who's this terrible king, and it's about the conflict between Syria and northern Israel, and it's basically showing how bad this king is. And then toward the tail end of the book, in 36 to 39, you have the story of King Hezekiah, another royal narrative. Remember Hezekiah? He was that one when Assyria was trying to break... Assyria had just defeated the northern kingdom. They're trying to destroy Jerusalem. And we've, I think we've talked about this. There's that great story where the king literally takes on the suffering of his people. And so the worse the battle gets and the more the Assyrians try to destroy Jerusalem, the sicker and sicker the king gets physically. And then there's this miraculous intervention. Assyria backs out and the king is miraculously healed. And it's this, this great narrative about it. And then, but all of it is, so those two royal narratives are smack in the middle of first kind of the introduction and call of Isaiah, then all these prophecies for Judah and Israel and the other nations. And then what we get to, which is this eschatological view of what's going to happen in the future. So the middle part of Isaiah is really all about, here's the bad news. Things are going to happen. Remember, we've always divided the book up between chapters one through 40, book which of is woe, the bad news. B- book of consolation. Yeah. And the book of consolation and the, the, the good news, right? Whoa. So we're way, way into the good news. So basically Isaiah has just told the people that even though, yeah, there was this miraculous intervention in the time of Hezekiah, this was very good, another nation called Babylon is going to come in and finish the job because the people don't turn back to God, they don't repent, they don't become the people that God wants them to be. They will be gone off into exile, they will eventually come back from exile. But then this part of the book at the very end looks way into the future, that after all of the exile, after the return from exile, God's going to build up in his, his people in a way that was totally unexpected and, and sort of looks to the future. Our, our passage today cuts off right before Isaiah introduces the concept of the new heavens and the new earth right, to us. Right. So that's it, how far in the future we're kind of talking about. Absolutely. It, it, and, which I was kind of bummed about. I actually read some context today and I was like, ooh, that yeah. would have really been helpful for this reading. I don't think it would have. Personally, I don't think it would have been helpful for this reading at all. I don't even know. <laughs> no, I mean, I really on. can see how don't, they wouldn't have done it. Come on, man. Stick to it. Stick to your guns. No. Who am I? You're Scott Powell, I am PhD. Nobody. I'm Jean Valjean. Uh, okay, so here's what it says. So, it, with that kind of context <laughs> in mind, so basically just remember bad news, good news, way forward good news. Okay. Okay. So, we're in the way forward good news. So, it says, Thus says the Lord. So, this also takes into account that they know everything that either happened or will happen as far as their history and their, their, their um, exile and those sorts of things. So thus says the Lord, I know their works. And it's talking about Israel. I know their works and their thoughts, which are bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I will come to gather nations of every language and they shall come to see my glory. I will set a sign among them. From them, I will send fugitives to the nations to Tarshish, Put, Lud, Moloch, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands. Now, pause there for a second. Um, from them, I will send fugitives to the nations. Who is God sending to the nations? Historically, who does he send to the nations? Well, okay, sorry, that was too ambiguous a question. I apologize. I'm not trying to set you up for... Who does God send? I mean, I the church. I mean, like the apostles. Eventually. But right now, think oh. context. We're in Isaiah. Oh, yeah, yeah. What He's, has God just done? The exiles. The exile is effectively sending Israel as fugitives to the nations. Not for good reason. So, I mean, where your mind went was was what the church's mission is, which the church's mission is really just a reiteration of what Israel was supposed to be in the first place, which was God's chosen people, the light to the world, who were to go out and bring the good news of Yahweh and draw the family back together. They fail at that. 
And so what does God do? Well, he forcibly sends them to the nations in exile, in slavery, as fugitives, as it says here, so that what? So that he can draw them back in. What The only way these readings all make sense together is realizing that God's going to make his ways... Um, He's going to, his will is going to be done, whether we like it or not, basically. And in this case, it's God's will being done, even though Israel's not going to be happy about the way in which it's done, because it's going to be done out of punishment. And even in God's punishment, even in God's wrath in a certain sense, his will will be done. Good will come out of this, and the world will be set to rights, right? So he's going to send them as fugitives to the nations, to places like Tarshish and Put and Lach, Lud and, and Tubal and Javan. And to the distant coastlands, and the people who have never heard of my fame or seen my glory, they shall proclaim my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all of your brothers and sisters from the nations as an offering to the Lord. So the idea is, I'm going to send Israel as fugitives, as slaves, as refugees in a certain sense, to all the nations. And the idea is, while they're sent off to the nations, they're going to proclaim my glory. And they're going to, tell, they're going to evangelize, because what do you do as the people of God when you're in exile? You evangelize there. That's the job. What, is, what does St. Paul do when he's thrown in prison every time he preaches the gospel? He preaches the gospel even more. Right. That's the calling. That's, that's what it means to follow God. So the idea is people are going to hear about this. And even if Israel is not at the top of their game, the fact that God's word is being proclaimed, that God's glory is being shown, is going to be enough to draw the nations. And they'll hear the glory. And Israel is someday going to bring all of these brothers. And, and note that, that Isaiah calls them brothers and sisters from the other nations. These are what we think of as the pagan nations. And here Isaiah is not calling them the pagan nations. He's calling them the brothers and sisters of Israel, which is fairly telling. It's, it's important that he uses that terminology, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, they're coming horses and chariots and carts and mules and dromedaries to Jerusalem, my holy mountain, and all these things. And presented like clean vessels as priests and all this stuff. So there is the, the simple fact of what's going to happen historically. But then there's a couple things just embedded in here. Tarshish, it's the first place that's mentioned in this list of the places where the people are going to come from who are like an offering given back to the Lord. Do you know anybody who comes from Tarshish? Well, Jesus, I mean, that's one of the things, uh, Saul of Tarshish. Saul of, of Tarsus, right? So that is the same place. So St. Paul of Tarsus. It was eventually at one point called Tarshish. But what is Paul's job? Paul goes out. He actually lives this out in its fullness. So it, in its eschatological vision. So there's one level in which Israel is going to do this, but there's another level in which the church, like you said, is going to do it on a whole different level. And Paul, as one of the remnants of Israel, is going to go out kind of like a, a fugitive in a certain sense. As a homeless man, he's going to go out to these nations, that have ne these distant coastlands, all these places that have never heard of God's fame or his glory, and they will glorify him through it. And out of those, literally, he says, God says at the end of this passage from Isaiah, some of these I will take as priests and Levites. It's out of the churches that Paul begins to build that you have some of the greatest of the saints, the priests, the bishops, the popes, all come out of this. So, I mean, this isn't just some abstract, generic prophecy about the future. We're living literally in the midst of this. This prophecy is about what's happening right now in history. Mm. We're living in the midst of this prophecy. But it can't be forgotten that the only way to get to this point was Israel being punished and sent out to the nations. Because it was only through that punishment that God's glory was going to be known. Why? Because Israel refused to do it on her own volition. So God had to correct them. He had to punish them, as a good father often does. An anti-grounding. 
Yeah, basically. You're an anti-grounder. Hey, dude, I uh, I like to fly. Does that make sense? I believe I can fly. Does that make sense? I believe that what you said was good. All right, so that takes us to the song. <laughs> I mean, I mean, dude, you just like laid out one of the most intense principles of of like human spirituality and divine patternings in our life is that like, um, is that <sighs> disciplines uh, from the Lord are the path for goodness. Yes, that's exactly it. Oh, well, and keep what you just said because the second reading explains it. So in, in the intermediary, we have the responsorial. Which is so funny because Psalm 117 is two oh. verses. Yeah, so it actually, the response itself is from Mark 16. Yeah. With the Great Commission, or Mark's version of the Great Commission, right? Dude, which is very rare that we actually get a response that's a gospel verse. Sometimes we do. It's rare. It's, oh, sorry. <laughs> Don't say it like that. <laughs> Don't yes, you say it, it like you're that right. to me. You're right. It's rare. Oh, dude, I'll, dude, I've had enough. I've had enough M&Ms to like really, really like like fall asleep on you or something. Yeah, no, you're, you look like you're crashing right now. No, I'm having a sugar crash. I'm oh, not. No, I don't mean to. Prop it up. Have another M&M. Here. I do. No, I'm here. I, I'm doing here. I'm doing. Open good. your mouth. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Guys, we spent like. 15 minutes before the podcast with me throwing gummy worms and Father Peter trying to catch him in his mouth. And dude, he, and he on like, air live. It was, am- it it was really shot. amazing. Perfect shot. Perfect catch. And go and, out to all the world and tell the good news about that. Dude, that's what that's, we're doing. That's, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> this is good news. This is not the good news. The good news is different than the, the good, good news. Yeah. This is just generically good. news. Dude, I love really, really short Psalms. Praise the Lord. All you nations glorify him. You peoples. This is the instruction these are the words that ought to be in Israel's mouth as she's being sent off into exile, right? That's what she should be proclaiming. Despite the fact of what's happening to us, praise the Lord, all of you nations, all of you are captors, all of you are enemies, all of you, those who have taken us into slavery, praise the Lord, all of you. I mean, and we know this explicitly because this is the command that's given way back in Exodus. God says, I'm doing these plagues and all of these things so that Egypt can come to know me. That's his goal. Dude, this is some wild stuff. I mean, and then you look at that and go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature from Mark in relationship to praise the Lord, all you nations, extorium, all you peoples. His mercy is for us is strong. Faithfulness to the Lord is forever. Hallelujah. Like, this is the song that they sing in captivity as they're, being, as they're being taken. I mean, like... That's it. That's really, like... And, and notice, like, the simplicity of a song. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but, like, I, I noticed this as a DJ. Is that um, there? There's like certain songs that, like, as they go, the the, the simplicity of them is like is like so wonderful. Like, um, "Around the World" by Daft Punk. It's a very very simple song. <laughs> oh, Daft Punk! Oh, Daft Punk! I don't know Daft Punk. Around the world, around the world, and you like play it, and you're like, ah, oh, I love that song, but it's super simple. But and, and and like the simple song is the one that can actually be repeated super easily, and so I right. love that Psalm one seventeen had kind of in this in this context of this exilic reality is like really, which really what powerful a, what a perfect psalm if you're in exile you don't have the freedom necessarily to have scrolls and paper and a context in which you can do all these things you have to have something quick that you can recite and memorize quickly because you're going off into exile right so the psalm speaks to the reality of its 
of its context, I guess. And it's also the same kind of thing that's on the lips of the apostles yep. when they're being persecuted in the, in the New Testament. Right. You see this kind of thing. So... Gets that, us into the Hebrews. It really does. So, okay. So take um, everything we just talked about, especially the first reading and how we unpacked the first reading to show what was going on, that all of that is only going to be possible. What, what did you say? It's spoken about this, the Lord's discipline is what's going to bring this, right? Yes, absolutely. So check out what Hebrews says. Brothers and sisters, you, ha- you have forgotten the exhortation addressed to you as children. My son, do not disdain the discipline of the Lord. Oh, dude, listen, listen to the way that the, the Greek, uh, even untranslated, unreordered Greek says. It says, do not make light of Ooh. the Lord's discipline or give up when you're corrected. Wow. For the for the one who loves the Lord, um, for he oh yeah yeah so you keep going yeah yeah he endure your trials as discipline God treats you as sons for what son is there as father does not discipline I mean the discipline is a sign of love it's not loving to let your kids do whatever they want to and beat on each other and that's just there's no mercy there's no love there no no it's really horrible actually not being disciplined it, like not actually having a real clear sense of what yeah. my boundaries are is yeah. really awful and like. Discipline actually comes from the root, same root as disciple. Like, go make disciples of all nations. Yeah. Go like, discipline all the nations. Go discipline all the nations. Well, the Lord, the Lord can do that. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, and we can't forget the context of the letter to the Hebrews, um, which, remember, the Hebrew is written to the Jewish people, the Hebrews. It's the only letter, the epistle, I think, that's written back to the believers in Jerusalem. It's believed to be, actually. And what's happening in Jerusalem? Well, I mean, and we've talked about this on the podcast, but I mean, just imagine the context for a second and put yourselves back kind of in the shoes of the Old Testament people. You have these predominantly Jews who have now become followers of Jesus. Jesus, what's happening in the Holy Land in the decades after Jesus's ascension? You have war heating up. You have battles being planned. You have a whole nation that's preparing to go to war against the great and powerful Rome who's preparing to fight. And that's going to come to a head in the year 66 to 70 AD when Rome is obliterated by the Rome. I mean, where Jerusalem is obliterated by the Roman forces because this war has broken out. So this is what everybody's getting ready for. Everyone's preparing. Your neighbors are gathering up weapons and food, and we're preparing for war because that's what you do because this is God's holy city. But you're a believer. You're a Christian now. You follow Jesus. And Jesus explicitly told you not to fight in this war. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and you see all these things on the horizon, you are to run for the hills. You are to head to the hill country. You are to turn the other cheek. You are to forgive your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You are to do the opposite of what literally everyone around you is doing, which is going to make you automatically a traitor, a hypocrite, a coward, you know, a tree, a guilty of treason, whatever it is. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to live the gospel in the context of that? Oh, you guys are getting ready for war to defend God's holy city? Peace. We're going to take off to I'm out of here. I mean, imagine the suffering of that. So it's not coincidental that that's the context in which this is being written. But don't forget that the, the discipline of that yeah. is actually going to lead. It's really because this is a principle of the book of Acts of the Apostles. It is because the church was so persecuted in Jerusalem that the Christians had to flee and begin going to the Gentile territories, which is where the gospel really began to take fire yeah. and St. Paul's missionary territories begin to spread. It's a, it's a lot like the uh, Patrick Swayze version of Red Dawn. 
You know, all I can think of is ghost. Ghost, yeah. No, it's like Red Dawn, man. They like they like invade, and everybody's like, "Oh, you should stay and fight." But they're like, "We're going to the hills," and then they like go to the hills. But it's only because they went to the hills that then they could actually redefeat the yeah redefeat. I mean, because that's yeah. actually ultimately it just is a longer timeline that the church enters into Rome. Yeah, that's and right. and from the charity and love that's poured out for one another, it, actually the full fruit of the discipline that they've learned in that moment that it actually becomes this moment of worldwide blessing. And that defeats Rome and in that, a certain sense. And it defeats Rome. And, and it's the whole, mora- it's, it's not just some yeah. sort of power struggle, but it just defeats the the cultural yes. horrors of what ancient Rome was. And it, the thing is, it doesn't just conquer it and wipe it out. It conform, it, it, it converts it. It, it transforms converts. Yes. it. Which is so much better than conquering. We didn't come to, we're not called to be conqueror. We're called to be conquerors. In a certain sense, but we're called to be converters. We're called to change the world, not destroy the world. You're a catalytic converter. Oh, nice. Well done. I'm a cross converter. I don't know what that means. I don't either. I just made it up. Repent or perish. That's the that's the heading of this section in Repent <laughs> my study or perish. Bible. Is it, Luke. is it P A R I S H? No. Repent or perish. You're too, you're too. <laughs> Welcome to the parish of Saint Repentance. Um, Jesus, so so chapter 13, verse 22, we're in the gospel of Luke. Remember from Luke nine until Luke 19, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He's headed toward his cross and everything he tells, everything he does, every parable he tells, every story he tells has to do with people coming home, people being unprepared, people um, being snuck up on masters returning all of these kinds of Mm. themes, right? So Jesus passed through the towns and villages uh, teaching as he went, making his way to Jerusalem, and someone asked him, Lord, will only a few people be saved? And he answered, strive to, uh, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will attempt to enter, but will not be strong enough. Dude, now, I was looking at that, at that narrow, the whole, the whole concept of narrowness in the, uh, the Old Testament. And like the only thing that I could kind of relate it back to is David. David actually, the, the narrow way, Actually, was was something that was considered con- consistently used when David was facing off against Saul. I know. It, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so, so this word. I mean, it was the most times used w- for David, who w- in in his best days when Saul was hunting him, and he's like trying to proclaim the nature of the Anointed One, but then wow. at the same time running away. Wow. I know. That's, I think that's important. I do too, I, and I don't know why it's important, but I but that but like it felt right, like because the narrow way is is like is like I was just trying to understand like if Jesus is referring to this narrow way, like is there some experience that we have that he's kind of tapping into in the psychology and the mm. and the the lived experience of Israel, probably, and and so yes, I think so. Yeah. Well. Okay. So before we get to so I want to unpack that. But before we even get there, the question this person asked him, Lord, will only a few people be saved? This is the moment when all of us who are 21st century Christians who were formed by, frankly, by Martin Luther and his effect on Western, Western Christianity were totally confused on what this guy was asking. Because what we think he's asking is not mm. what he was asking. What does it mean in the Jewish mindset to be saved? Do you know? Do you remember? Uh, or rather, what does it not mean primarily? To not be saved, right? To what, no. Be, what does this term "what is to be saved" not mean primarily for this for this culture? 
Um, soteriology. I don't know. Um, I, um, I'm not trying to trick you. I, no, no. I, I, I just actually, didn't know if we talked about this. No. Bill, Bill Mansfield knows, but I don't. <laughs> well, what it doesn't primarily have to deal with is what happens when you die. Oh. So here's the thing. I think we all it's read family. this. Like, oh, it's salvation. Isn't it, isn't it entrance into the family? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's broader than that. So, I mean, Caesar offered soter. Caesar offered salvation if you fell under the the protection of the Roman Empire, right? That's the Pax Romana. I will save you. So uh, being saved does not... Nobody's When when this guy is saying, what does it mean to be saved or how many will be saved? He's not saying how many people are going to go to heaven when they die. That is not what he's asking. What's interesting is the word fugitive you used in the first reading is also to refer... It's like a survivor or one who is saved. Really? Yeah, the, the 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 route that you are using is is talking wow. about is talking about those who are saved. Wow. So. Oh, that's profound. Which is sozo. So. Sozo. Sozo. Yeah, sozo. not soter. Sozo. Sozo. Um. So, what does that mean? So, yeah, this so is. What does it mean? It's not how many people are going to heaven. Then. I mean, then, that's a part of it. that has to do with it. But I mean, in the context, one of the things we know about the Jewish people of the first century is they weren't overly concerned about the afterlife. It existed. There was debate about it. People talked about these things, but just wasn't that much on their radar screen. We, for some reason today, and in Christianity of the last hundred, couple hundred years, we're so concerned. I mean, we've become sort of Gnostics in the sense that we don't really care about this world. We're just caring about what happens when we die, but do, which but is doesn't, not Christian. But doesn't St. Paul always uh, like talk about fleshly thinking versus life in the spirit? And like He's talking about sinful thinking. Well, and, that, and that's where, so where flesh, I, that's where I think that we can get tripped up. We is, absolutely is can. saying being in the flesh. See how how quickly like because I knew what I was saying just oh, now. You were trying to trick me. I was trying to trick you. You can't trick me. You can't. Not tri- this week, at least. Uh, yeah, uh, but I can get you tricked to Finn from a lot of turkey consumption. <laughs> tripped to Finn. Dang it! I know it's close. <laughs> it was so close. I got tripped up. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so this is the thing is like, um, it's so easy. Okay. We're in the flesh and we know that it's fleshly thinking, but, but he also says Jesus took on flesh, I know, which but, is very, very good. But it's so funny because we can take that double meaning and say, oh man, I'm going to be finally happy when I'm out of my flesh. Right. But the truth is, is that the entirety of the resurrection of the body, we proclaim every week that yes. in fact, we are going to be bound to yes. fleshly bodies for eternity. Right. Absolutely. Every seven years, we'll get a new one, but still, for <laughs> it's like for a long time, it's like your warranty is up. Um, well, I, in the so, I mean, if if you're living in the Roman Empire, what Caesar is offering is if you become a part, so to speak, like you said, of the family of Rome, the people, the culture, of the civilization of Rome, you are safe. You are in. You are saved. You are sozo, right? Mm. So, what people are saying when they're asking Jesus about being saved, it means entrance into the family of God, entrance into the kingdom. How many, he could have said, I suppose, will be let into God's kingdom? How many will be a part of it? Just a few or a lot? I mean, death, we, we overly focus on what happens when we die, and it makes us miss the ways that God wants us to build his kingdom here and now and today. Christianity is not escapism, and right. I think a lot of Christians have become escapists, right. which is very untrue to Christianity. Right. It is about God is transforming the world here and now, not just, thanks be to God, we get to get the heck out of here someday. That's, mm. that's way too small for what mm. God wants to do. So this guy is saying, how many people are going to be in the kingdom of God, in your kingdom? How many will be allowed in? 
And he said, he doesn't give quite a, an answer, does he? So he goes, go through the narrow gate. From many, I tell you, will attempt to enter, but will not be strong enough. Why not strong enough? Because to enter into the family of God, there's going to be discipline. It's going to be hard. Just like the first reading, just like the second reading, it's going to hurt. It's going to be difficult. There's going to it be involves sacrifice. It's going to involve sacrifice. As the master of, after the master of the house has arisen and locked the door, then you will stand outside knocking and saying, Lord, open the door for us. And he will say to you in reply, I do not know where you are from. And you will say, we ate and drank in your company. You taught in our streets. And he will say, I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, you evildoers. And then there's going to be gnashing and grinding of teeth. And they'll see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the people. And they'll be cast out and it'll be really sad. And all the people from the east and the west and the north and the south, they'll all recline in the kingdom of God. Um, Here's the things that are floating around in my head. And here's where I think Saul and David come into play. Mm. Jesus, and I've always been kind of bugged by this. Jesus' response when these guys in this future vision are knocking on the door saying, hey, let us in. His response is always, I do not know. It's, it's not, I do not know who you are. It's, I do not know where you are from. And then again, he says, I do not know where you are from. He doesn't say, I don't know who you are. He says, I don't know you're, where you're from. And I don't know exactly what that means, but what it does do in my head is turn my mind toward geographic things. And I'm thinking about the first reading, which was very geographic, because the people of God were going to be sent off to these specific foreign places. Hug. Where they would be in the nations, and those people of those nations mm. will be brought back, and they will be priests, and they will offer sacrifice, and they will be part of the family of God. And you get the sense that the people banging on the door are those who thought themselves insiders, right? Well, right. we're part of the kingdom. Like we're we're you know we're part of the family. We've been here. We've you know we're part of things. Who are those people inside coming from all these different nations? They're not part of us. And but we do know one of the earliest debate, the, the biggest fights in the early church, hands down the biggest fight in the early church, was how can we possibly let in all these Gentiles? Because they're unclean and they're not Israelite and they're not part of us. They're outsiders. They're from over there. How can we let in people from Tarsus and Philippi and Corinth? You know, could easily just be Tarshish and Pud and, and Lud and all those other places, right? There's something about the geography and the idea that the people of God are not bound by a place anymore. I think of the resentment. I, th I see these people outside the door in Jesus's vision, resenting those who were inside, thinking, well, we were insiders, right? I mean, the reason I think this might relate back to Saul and David is because, and this is consistent in the Gospels, it's consistent in the New Testament, the threat for the church is usually never coming from outside. We're never worried about the world. We're not worried about campus. We're not worried about the politicians. We're not worried about what the world is going to do to us. The threat for the church is always from inside. It's always us and our hearts being corrupted. It's always the evil one trying to, to sway us and turn us against each other and ourselves and our God. And which is why the fact that this line keeps coming up in the context of David, it was the king of Israel who was, who was persecuting David. The king of Israel was persecuting another king of Israel. That's where the threat lies. Mm. And, you know, you go through Isaiah, and yeah, there's Assyria, and there's Babylon, and all those things. But God's going to use Assyria and Babylon and Egypt to his greater good. God's going to use Rome. Rome is not—I mean, this is Jesus' words constantly. It's not Rome that you have to fear. It's the evil one you have to fear. It's not Assyria you have to fear. It's not the Babylonians. It's, it's not, not your, the Egyptians. It's not it's your parish priest. It's not your parish it's, priest. It's not your bishop. It's not the media. It's not it's a, the it's politicians. A, it's not 
what's happening on campus or the culture around us. It's none of those things. They're symptomatic of the evil one who's actually the, who you have to fear. Absolutely. Rather and than... the biggest threat is him infiltrating your heart. Right. Which is why walking the narrow way, as David did, yeah. is a profound discipline. To say, to discipline your mind and your heart to accept authority from God yeah. is really, really hard. <laughs> to to be able to say like okay you know what I'm gonna accept a discipline of 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 some level of destruction within my life yeah that is really hard and but all, but both of those particular instances in the narrow path when you walk those and they come to full fruit all of a sudden the the, the power surge that comes through from being right. able to open your heart to God is like this is the real stuff. That yeah. is that is that is not that is living on meat right there. That is not living on milk. Living on the meat. Living on a prayer, take my hand, and we'll make it out square. Oh, oh. Living on a prayer. Living on a prayer. So, yeah, these are hard readings. In hindsight. And beautiful. They're beautiful. So, y'all, I don't know how the Lord is disciplining you. I don't know what the what the story is, but... I'll tell you, you must seek the Lord regardless of what you receive from his hand. We accept mm. good things, and should we not accept evil? Mm. We accept um, we accept uh, the blessings of God, but should we not accept his discipline? And every bit of discipline is when it is received is a hardship, and we experience it. But take it like sons. Yeah. Take it like take take it and say, you know what? I know that I'm being raised up into in, into full maturity. Like that that's actually what we're that's because that was what we're looking for. And we're looking to f- forward to defeat our enemies. Yeah. Because our enemies are as uh, enumerated as we did before. It is the evil one and his principalities and powers. Right. Not the people that are before us. Like the, right. they, they may have fed in, but that's why we love them. So that, right. so that th- those things can detach from them. Yeah. Because that is really, I mean, is there nothing more greater than that? Than just letting people detach from the strongholds that are in their life and yeah. and, and and find strongholds in the one who is is in the who is is the lord mm. yeah 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 i love you guys we will see you next week with a brand new episode and we'll see some of you on sunday hopefully we'll see all of you at the air mass of the fair and field indeed open open up god bless see you bye see you then bye-bye The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.